So you broke the airplane. I did not break the airplane. The airplane was broken. The airplane had problems. Hi, I'm George Tekmachev here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson for another Easton podcast, number 53, I believe. Oh, we just keep hammering through them. Time goes by when you're having fun, I guess. <laughs> Speaking of time, you spent quite a bit of time on the tarmac and never got to um, to Belgium. Yeah, five hours hoping to get on a flight to Europe and... Broken airplane? Didn't work. Um, yeah. So bummer. I uh, had to cancel the trip. I'm sorry to hear that. So what's your next uh, event coming up? Um, OPA. Okay. Yes. What's the format this year for OPA? Um, I think it's 20 targets a day, 3D targets, one arrow per target, standard ASA scoring system, but, uh, you know, as in OPA It's got like a 14 ring. Yeah, it's a, yeah, 14 is eligible. Um, and the 12, it's painted a light pink. Oh, so it's a marked rubber deer. Yes. And the, the 12 ring is painted orange. So there is. So even I could shoot it because I, you know, the biggest problem with getting a target shooter into an event like that is that you've got to have the secret decoder ring to know where to yeah, shoot Yeah, you don't the know thing. where to aim. So this at least gives you a reference. I mean, that's a pretty small dot to aim at. But, but it's still there. Yeah, at least it's something. All right. And then after OPA, there's USA Nationals. So you got anything else in between? Um, yeah, prior to USA Nationals is um, NFAA Field Nationals. Oh, so in, in Yankton. Yankton. Yeah. Well, that'll be joyful. A lot coming up. Yeah. So, uh, not just a lot coming up, but, uh, you know, uh, a lot of listener questions today, which is very nice, as always. Let's hammer through them. Let's do it. I want to thank everybody for, uh, for writing in on the, on the Facebook, on the, uh, the uh, easiest way to reach us, of course, which is at the Easton Target Archery Facebook page. And um, let's just jump into it, shall we? Let's do it. All right. Robert Swenson. Says he got his question in too late on the last show, so he's going to ask again. Thanks for doing that, Robert. Uh, he'd like advice on shooting with both eyes open. Uh, I shoot right-handed and I'm right-eye dominant, but only slightly so. So he's he's struggling a little bit, Steve, with uh, you know the left eye trying to take over, mm-hmm. which you know often that happens when you get tired, whatever. Right. Um, I'll talk about my strategy for dealing with this, and then maybe you can think, you know, maybe pitch in on this. Um, and already we've had some other uh, of the show regulars kind of chime in yeah on, i see on the a lot of there. good answers there, and they are so. good answers right use yep. a blinder is a good answer and and here's why robert um if you close your non-dominant eye like deliberately close the eyelid you're putting extra strain on yourself you're going to fatigue faster and you actually reduce your visual acuity in the other eye by a substantial amount on the order of 20 percent um and there's some physiological reasons for that but Basically, if you wear glasses, this is very easy. Take a piece of uh, non-transparent tape and and just put a little dot of non-transparent tape in the alignment of that non-dominant eye, or smear the lens with uh, something you know that would that would smear it up like chapstick or something. Or you can do what the uh, other folks uh, on the on the Facebook there have recommended, which is use a blinder. And what do we mean by a blinder? Well, we're Strictly speaking, of it could be anything as simple as a business card that has been bulldog clipped to the visor of your hat, to you know a piece of uh, carbon fiber hanging down, and everything in between. So uh, that's that's basically the best advice I think. Yeah, and I'd say you know I don't make an attempt to shoot with one eye open or one eye closed. I kind of it's dictated by the lighting conditions a lot. Yeah, so and with a peep, just let, with peep don't you, you you know you get a little bit of self-correction with a compound and a peep. We're yeah. not sure which way you know we don't yeah, I'm true. looking at the picture here of Robert and I think he is yeah, it looks like Robert is shooting a compound bow but uh, in the little avatar there but I can't tell. But yeah, it seems to me that um you know uh the the easiest way is not to squint up but to you know, just put a blinder there and relax both eyes. So hopefully that helps. Malcolm uh, is questioning this. And this is a good question. Um, you know, we're, we're in one of those transition periods, Malcolm. Your question is, with the predominance of the 720 head-to-head at the international level, has the value of breaking the 1400 barrier lessened? Um, so, for example, Steve is a regular 700-plus archer, but has he got his 1400 badge? Has he even considered trying to get one? And will we ever see another recurve 1400 
or a, gen- a gentleman's recurve 1400. So let's break this down. First off, um, for those of you out there who might be a little confused by what you just heard, um, the old official U.S. and and world archery round was a double 144 arrow round, each one of which had a total score of 1,440 points potentially, and a double round, therefore, would be 2880. So breaking down each of the single rounds, the feet around, what we call the feet around when it was the Federation International de Tierra Lark, as opposed to World Archery, which is what it is today, we had the opportunity to shoot benchmark scores. And say 30 years ago, 20 years ago even, the benchmark internationally was around 1,300. Now, today, that benchmark is closer to 1,360, 1,370. That's the kind of scoring you'd have to do on that round. Here's the problem, though. With a few exceptions, the round has essentially died off. Um, More and more countries are just shooting 70 meters only. France, for example, only shoots 70 meters in their national competitions. The Korean team, very notably, still shoots a full feet around the four distances, which were 30, 50, 60, and 70 for women in meters, and then for men, 30, 50, 70, and 90. And so, you know, the the loss of that 90-meter round in particular, some people feel, has led to a general sort of plateauing of score potential. Um, There's only ever been one recurve shooter that broke 1,400. She was from Korea, Miss Pak, and she shot a 1,405 uh, a few months after she won the Athens Olympic Games. And um, no one's done it since in international competition, that is sanctioned competitions, competition where you've got the requisite number of world archery judges and it's a registered event. And you keep hearing word from Korea of you know a local event where somebody broke 1,400. We've heard that numerous times. But uh, generally speaking, only, only one woman has broken 1,400. Now let's take this around to the question that Malcolm has for Steve. Steve, you're, you, you hardly ever get to shoot a full feet around. I've only shot them twice. Yeah. I used to shoot them twice in a weekend. You know, back in the yeah. day, that's all you shot. So the opportunities, Malcolm, to shoot a 1400 for a compound shooter today are few and far between because it only counts if you shoot at a Starfita. And right. fewer and fewer of those are being registered all the time, unfortunately. So um, would you like to try to consider getting a 1400 badge if you can? No. Okay. Well, it's it's. Uh, I mean, it doesn't yeah, meet your current goals, right? I mean, the problem is, you because we don't do it very often. Our opportunity at shooting in even decent conditions is is hard to find. So, the two I shot were USA Nationals, and this was when all four of our national events, our USAT events, were contested only at fifty meters, but our national championships was still contested. As a full feed, and this would have been one of the last times that that yeah, took it was place. the last, it was the last two. Um, this was four or five years ago, <clears throat> so so you had to shoot a double feeder back then. Yeah, we just shot a. I don't know. We just shot a fourteen forty round. Oh, one, just one, just one. Okay. So, but it was yeah. The problem is both times we're dealing with twenty five mile an hour winds and thunderstorms and cancellations. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even think we finished one of the events entirely. Yeah. So. Um, you know, if we were shooting it for all four or five of our USA events in a year, certainly, you know, we're probably going to have good conditions once in a while. And, and then, yeah, I'd feel pretty good about shooting a 1400, but you know, we still shoot a, we shoot a double, uh, 720 for our USA nationals now. And last year I shot a 1421 and that's, you know, all 50 meters, which I would say is probably you're probably a good five to seven points higher in a double 720 at 50 versus you know a, a full 1440 uh, feet around now I'm, i have an advantage there because 90 meters is a little more comfortable of a shot for me and my anchor point and with my bow speed i get there easily so i don't have to do anything weird so i could shoot a pretty good 90 meter score and i have just for my own practice but I think we've lost something um, in losing 90 meters from the standpoint of just that really high level of precision that's required to do the job. But um, 
in a way, I'd say that's one reason why the Koreans still shoot it. Yeah, the you know the thing I saw when we shot ninety meters was that often decided the the tournament. You know, everyone's going to be so close at fifty and so close at seventy and thirty. I was in your category in the compound yeah. category, absolutely true. So ninety meters was was the tournament yeah. for us. For you know, for a recurve shooter, ninety meters can make or break your effort to a degree, but you can make stuff up at fifty as well. Right. Whereas with compound, it's hard to do. Yeah, I I wouldn't say I miss it at all. It's yeah. uh, you know, I I just think target archery right now is it lacks the uh, the fifty meter round lacks the technical requirements. Um, you know, even comparing it to. I was shooting NFA field the other day and shooting at 80 yards and what you have to do there that, you know, the, the fundamentals you have to remember and everything you have to do to make a good shot go where you expect it to is much more difficult than at 50 meters where you can almost get away with murder there. You don't yeah. really have to watch your bubble. You know, you can torque the bow. There's all sorts of stuff you can do at 50 and still have it hit in the, in the 10 ring. So I shot a, 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 80 centimeter face at 70 meters the other day just for fun. And, um, I shot a 349. I was pretty pumped with that. So, you know, you and I have talked about just, you know, speculatively because neither of us has any influence anywhere with anybody, but we have discussed the possibility of, because of the complaint you're making, um, regarding the 50 meter round that a viable round could be shooting the 80 centimeter face 20 meters further out. You know, my thought is the the mid mid size ninety two centimeter face. Yeah, you did mention that. Yeah, but you went all the way and shot the eighty at seventy. Right. And um, there's a number of reasons why that's a little bit compelling from a certain point of view. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily think that that would be very advantageous if you had really bad weather. No, it'd be. It, I was indoors. Yeah. You know, and I was shooting pretty well. Yeah. And even then, there were shots I broke that I thought that would be a 10. You know, it wasn't a great shot, but it would be a 10 at 50 meters probably pretty easily. Yeah. And at 70, it was closer to the 8 ring than it was the 10 ring. Okay. In, in the 9. So it was it was really interesting to see it, you know, yeah, actually. It, it demonstrates it. that it, it would really raise the bar for the required precision. Yeah. A, a be great terrible score, for a club shooter, though. A great score would be 700. Yeah. be terrible for club shooters, though. I don't think they'd like it one little bit. You know, it's a. It goes back to what we've talked about a lot before: the ego. I mean, you have to accept a lower number, and realize you're not shooting the same game you were before. Yeah, but it's completely opposite your your indoor game. If you think about it from that point of view. Yeah, indoor is a game of don't miss. I would like to see. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think sometimes outdoors it is a game of don't miss. Maybe it'd be cool to see outdoors as a game of how how good can you be. Rather than don't screw up. Okay. And I think that would be a fresh perspective. You know, it could be very interesting from that point of view. Uh, Jeff is asking a question. This is a product question. He's asking about FMJ Match Arrows, uh, which is the relatively new product. He's got, um, oh, sorry. I'm going to go back just to to the previous question because I forgot to answer a couple of things that Malcolm had brought up, which were interesting to me. So Malcolm had asked, will we ever see another recurve 1400? And my answer to that is absolutely, I think we will. Because Korea does it. Uh-huh. And we'll see it from a Korean woman in particular. I don't know who, but we will see a One Korean woman yeah. do that. Or will we see a gentleman's recurve 1400? Maybe not, is that one. I don't know. Less likely because of 90 meters. A lot less likely. Yeah. What is the current world record for? Uh, like it's in the 80s 86 somewhere. Or yeah, something. 86 sounds about right. Yeah. Is it Oh Jin Hyuk? It's uh, it's one of the usual suspects. I can't remember which one right now. It might be Kim Wojin. So, um, you know, I, I think, Malcolm, that uh, a woman can reach that 1,400 barrier. It's not easy, of course, because it's only been done once in sanctioned competition. A tougher proposition for a man to do it. I don't think we're going to see a man do that. I don't. At least not, let's say, in the next 10 years. Watch me proved wrong next week. (laughs) You never know what the Koreans are capable of. They're just so, so talented. And if they get the right weather, who knows what could happen. Mm -hmm. All right. On to Jeff. Um, Jeff is shooting some FMJ matches, 400 spine value cut to 28 and a half. He's shooting 120 grains up front with a three vein setup. He's having trouble um, getting a good grouping. He says that uh, he's getting groups of groups 
And of the 12 arrows he's got, he's getting three or four arrows to group, and then another three arrows or four arrows to group. He's shooting um, 59 pounds, 29 three-quarter inch draw, um, and I'm going to presume obviously a compound here. He says archer's advantage, says his spine is optimum. Um, Jeff, one thing you didn't mention was what kind of knocks you're using. I would just make sure you get a good knock fit. Make sure your knocks are fitting your string correctly. And if you're still seeing issues after you've checked your knocks, write back to us and we'll uh, give you some other some other tips. Yeah, it'd be interesting. It could be um, you know, a number of different things. If, if one through three are always going to the left and three to six or, or four to six are always going to the right, then that's one thing. But if it's, you know, I'm getting three random arrows to the left and three random arrows to the right, it's probably a knock fit or yeah. a contact off the face or something like that. Right. He's, you know, he's, uh, he's questioning his form here. Um, that would be important to clarify. If it's arrows number one, two, and three grouping together and arrows four, five, and six grouping together consistently, that is a different scenario. So we need that clarification to really yeah. be able to go any further on that one. Chuck is asking about string setup. Uh, he's shooting a Prevail 40 SVX at 31 inches and 60 pounds, stock strings, and recently had to make his first string change. He says he spent the money and bought quality strings from First String, uh, not from some garage string maker of archery talk. <laughs> Ouch. Um, Chuck replaced the strings but made sure to get the bow back to the original specs that he was previously using with cam timing, string and cable length, draw length, holding weight, peep height, knocking point, etc., why is it if all of the above is the same as before, does the bow shoot, hold, and feel different now? It's like I'm at square one again and shooting this bow for the first time. With my previous setup, I shot some of my best scores. I'd like to just get back to where I was. Any suggestions? So, a couple things. One, Chuck, did you really measure everything before you took the bow down, and did you really get everything dialed back in afterward? And I'll give you a quick example of the importance of that. Uh, last week, our, our boss, uh, Mark Pizzoni, uh, came up to me, and he's showing me his bow, and says, are you concerned about this? And he's showing me his bowstring. And he's shot quite a bit, and he's cut a couple of strands, actually, and and had a center serving separate. So I arranged to get a new bowstring put on, and my good friend Jeremy Eldridge over at Hoyt um, put the new bowstring on with me kind of trying to keep my fingers out of the whole works. And we measured pretty carefully before we put the whole thing back together again, specifically where his peep was, brace height, things of that nature. Dialed it in, and to Mark's evident delight, didn't change the sight marks, didn't change the, the nature of the bow. Now, Chuck, you've gone and changed three things. You've changed your entire rigging. So your bus cable has changed, your control cable has changed, and your, your string is different. So it's hard to have everything dial in the same. Steve, you got any thoughts? Um, I mean, if you got everything back the same it was before, you know, holding weight's the same and draw length's the same, it's it's uh i don't know it's kind of puzzling to me the only thing i can think of is that just a difference in feel from one string material to another now i'm not sure how that would affect anything at full draw in regards to aiming and and uh holding but i'll tell you what can yeah if the set if the servings aren't the same diameter that is the servings that interface with the cam aren't the same diameter you could be seeing a change in holding weight or percentage of let off. Well, if he got, like I said, if he got the holding weight back, then you would think that wouldn't matter, but it still can because they can feel a larger diameter uh, cable will often feel stiffer to pull into. Right. So you might have the same holding weight, yes, but the same feel at full draw, it may be harder, maybe softer i don't know i'm gonna it's, say shoot the crap out of it for a while and and you know you'll get used yeah, it's to it kind of puzzling to me so uh -huh. all right no clear answers chuck sorry but uh shoot it for a while and and see if anything settles in david not dave cousins when shooting a WA-1440, 90 meters, I find that when shooting the longer distances, I seem to focus more on aiming. But as soon as it switches to the shorter distances and smaller faces, I focus more on technique. What's happening behind my bow and get better scores? Any advice on how to keep my focus more on technique and what's happening behind my bow instead of over-aiming? So, David, um, welcome to humanity. <laughs> you know, I know a lot of shooters, I, I think myself included at one time or another, who've actually inverted at 70 versus 90 
because you were more careful at 90. You were careful about your execution. You were careful to make sure you shot the shot correctly. And then when you got to 70, you got sloppy. You know, I remember one time I shot like a 320 something at 90. And then uh, at 70, I shot like two points less. And <laughs> I felt like a complete moron because that was a pretty good score at 90. And I kind of blew it by mm-hmm. by jacking up the, the 70. But, um, you know, I, I think it's it's simply a matter of getting used to the look of that target at the at the uh, next distances down. You know, 50 and 90 have a different look to them than 70 and 30. And I think that mm-hmm. can affect you. And I, I, I honestly, I think it's just a matter of stay on the line and don't get too caught up in, in what's down there. I think it's a visual perception. I mean, he's he's seeing a small yellow at 90, so he's feeling like he's over-aiming. Then at 70, it's likely that he's aiming exactly the same. You know, his his movement is probably the same, but it's not moving as far from the center of the yellow because it's just a larger-appearing yellow. So it's probably a perception. Um, you know, I, I would say the the less you can focus on aiming, obviously, is probably better and just try to execute the shot. You can over-aim a shot. But I don't think you can over-execute one. I've heard that said before. So, I don't know. It, in my head, it's just a, a visual perception. I, I see it too, you know, where you feel like you're, you're concentrating. When I was shooting that, that 70 meters on the 80-centimeter face, I was concentrating real hard to aim at the yellow. And you don't have to do that at, at 50. You're, you're concentrating real hard on where you're aiming on the 10. And yet so. the float's about the same. Yeah, realistically, the float is probably exactly the same. So it's how you're reacting to what you're seeing. Right. So, David, I've got a little bit of uh, insight on this that might be helpful to you. At least just give it a thought. My good friend Juan Carlos Holgado, who works for World Archery today, the 1992 team gold medalist of the Barcelona Games. Um, Juan Carlos had a similar problem, and I lent him um, my AMBO at the time, uh, variable aperture, which works like a camera lens diaphragm. And so what Juan Carlos was able to do was take it and crank it down to a certain diameter for 90 and then open it up a little bit for 70 and then crank it back down again for 50 and open it up again for 30 so that he got the same relative amount of target surrounded mm-hmm. in the aperture. You can do this with O-rings. You can do this with certain biter sight tunnel configurations. Just think about whether that might be worth your effort to try. And I think somebody is selling... Um, a couple of different German companies are selling similar apertures today. Yeah, if you're shooting compounds a little harder because you're probably it's your aiming dot that you know is covering the yellow. Yeah, you could always try you know a different swapping a lens or sight or go to a different one. It's it's not what I would do, but you know if you're if you're struggling at one or the other, you know figure out what works for you. Do what you need to. Yeah, change up. Uh, change up your attitude about what you're seeing is is an easy phrase to say and hard to do, but that's fundamentally what it is you're trying to accomplish here, David. Hopefully, you got a little bit of uh, wheat from that big pile of chaff we just gave you. Ben Edwards has a compound question. Uh, Steve, being compounds are not dependent on strength. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting statement. Being compounds are not dependent on strength, and certainly up to 70 meters, the difference between 50 and 60 pounds is negligible. I'm not sure I agree with either one of those comments, by the way. Um, is there a valid argument to say men and women should shoot against each other, especially indoors in field archery? I'm going to lob that one over the fence. Here you go. Well, I mean, it's happened a little bit. They've got some of the women shooting with the men in the open category in Vegas. Not keeping up with them so far. No. So far. My, my, my thing is, you know what? They're, the men's category as it is tends to be the highest paying category. So you know, at, at the NFA events and others. So that's why they've gone to it as an open category because anyone's, anyone's free to shoot it now. I'm 100% in favor of anybody that wants to shoot for that money having the opportunity. Right. 100%. In, uh, in outdoor archery, I mean, there's only, there's only uh, I don't know. There, there, there's some differences there. You get in the wind and... You know, Sarah Lopez has been able to outshoot the men from times at times, and yes, uh, although those, it's notable that they're not always shooting at the same times, so it's kind of hard to compare yeah, scores sometimes. But I've seen her, seen her when we did shoot. Hey, at the same we've time. seen we've seen yeah. the same thing from a lot of Korean women I know can beat any man with a recurve bow. Yeah, it's so, happened. 
you know, it's not a consistent thing, but right. It's she's in the mix, you know, but if we were to go off consistency, if we were to factor in the, the trend line, shall we say, um, compounds are dependent on strength. I'm, I'm going to dispute what Ben is saying. I, I will too, because my it's, wife it's can't holding. hold up Mike Schlosser's bow. Right. And it's about, it's about holding with the compound and aiming well with mm-hmm. the compound and strength is absolutely an advantage. And I'm going to, I'm going to argue that you've proven that. Yeah, the and, and Mike Schlusser has proven that. Hold the, the, Real Wild's a strong guy. I yeah. mean, you know. Um, now, Sarah is not a, a uh, delicate little flower. She's a strong woman. But she's also not holding a 10-pound bow. Exactly. Right? Know? So that's why in certain wind, she doesn't hang with them. Right. But I will say this. It's fine with me if they want to create an open category and a women's category. Sure. Fine by me. Just like Vegas did. Let the let the participants choose. Yeah, right? I if a if a Sarah Lopez beats me, I kind of I don't care. She's pretty good, so <laughs> I've but been I'll beat by that, you know. women before. Linda beats me in practice. You know, yeah. Matt Stutzman with no arms has beat me. So yeah, I'm kind of if you if you haven't been humbled in archery, you will sooner or later. <laughs> All right. So Ben, um, I don't agree that uh, compounds not dependent on strength. And I also don't agree the difference between 50 and 60 pounds is negligible. Yeah, I, 30 feet per second. That's a big difference. You know, so, it is, is a so, lot but, outdoors. You know, the, I like your question. Um, I just don't agree with your, your premise there. Um, Dylan is asking. Dylan says he sees Top Hat, which is a little outfit in Germany, is making rear-end protect, protector sleeves uh, similar to Carbon Express knock collars for the top-tier Easton target arrows. Any reason Easton doesn't make them? Um Mostly because I don't think that that's a great idea. What happens typically is you crack an arrow and it's hidden by one of those features, you know? Yeah, I don't think that does a lot to save an arrow. And it adds weight to the back, as you point out, Dylan. And for me, it's going to likely contact the blade or, you know, just it's just another thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong. If if you want to use them, God bless you. I'm not opposed to them, but in my. In my history of shooting Easton X-10s, I have broken one from a knock-end impact. I think that speaks for itself. Robert is asking, um, recommendations for Super Drive 23 for a youth archer for indoor five-spot and Vegas. And this is for an Ignite with 21-inch draw, 35 pounds. Recommendations for spine, cut length, point weight, fletching. Honestly, Robert. He's uh, way off the charts. Yeah, off the charts. I'm going to say get yourself a proper aluminum arrow. Yeah, correctly spined yeah. is going to trump diameter all day long, uh, save you some money. And I'm going to presume that this youth archer is in a growth mode. So it'll be less expensive when this person increases their draw length. Yeah. I mean, if they're, if they're set on using the super drive 23 because of the diameter and the, the lightweight of it, I mean, go with the 475 and too stiff though. It's going to be too stiff no matter what. Yeah. So start with it long and, and see, and, if you find somewhere that has good results and that's, that's all you can ask for. There's really no way or, or how or recommended setup for something. Yeah, that's honestly, stiff. I'm going to steer you towards, toward a properly spined aluminum arrow. Yeah. Cause that, that kind of draw length, you're looking over a thousand in the spine value. Right. And that's why it's, I mean, yeah. you know, the, the weakest super drive is still twice as stiff as what you need there. More than that. So uh, sorry, Robert, don't have a, quick recommendation for you on that. I'm going to suggest a properly spined aluminum. Josh Goodman, uh, not asking us to talk trash, but he says the Nano Pro RZ or RZ is weak in the middle as opposed to the Pro Tour that is um, stiff in the back. What makes one preferable over the other? Every world record outdoors is held with a Pro Tour. Um, Robert no, I'm not being a I'm not being a facetious here, Josh. Here's the deal: um, making an arrow weak in the middle. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what the pitch is. I just don't get it. I I don't understand it either because it seems to me like it it doesn't give it um, a recovery direction. Well, in fact, it's the opposite of what you want for proper clearance and for a number of other factors. So it gets going the wrong you get that arrow moving in the wrong direction and flexing too much and it's going to go the wrong way. I, 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 to me, it doesn't make, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I saw it when it came out. I never understood the premise of it. And if you watch, uh, you know, an arrow get launched off the blade at, at a, on a 
high speed camera, you'll understand because out of a, a good, well-tuned compound, they flex up and down. So I don't know what being weak in the middle does for you at all. Yeah. So sorry, Josh, we're ignorant on that subject, I guess, except that, you know, we do make a winning arrow. So we'll just leave it at that. Robert compound question. How important is it to index each arrow when group tuning at distance and how to calculate the spine once cut under 28 inches? So first part of the question is how important is it to index each arrow when group tuning at distance? Do you, uh, do you bother doing that? No. So not very important. Um, I mean, if you find one that you feel like is hitting out of the group, you know, definitely give it a 120 degree rotation on the knock and see if that brings it back in. But I tend to not feel like indexing is going to make a difference because I change my knocks frequently enough and I change my pins frequently enough that I think there's more variable in those than there is the spine around shaft on my X10s. So for me, most of the, most of the variable, like I said, is going to be in the, in the knock if it's anywhere. So, um, a good spine around shaft, you tend to not have wild arrows. So I don't know there. I mean, it's, uh, it's worth doing. Like I said, if you have one that doesn't, that doesn't hit, but I've only seen that me personally out of an all carbon arrow. So the next part of the question is how to, uh, calculate spine for an arrow that's been cut below 28 inches. Uh, there is a formula for this, which is too complicated to express verbally on the podcast, but you can go to archerytrade.org and in their uploads section, you'll find the document for the official guideline for the ATA measurement of arrow shaft static spine and the mathematical formula is in there. It's a third order function, so you're going to need your calculator. Hopefully that, uh, that'll be easy to find. If you just Google hmm. what I just described, it'll be easy enough to find. I assume maybe he's wanting to say, you know, like is a 420 arrow at 27 stiffer than a, or excuse me, weaker than say a 470 at 28. I don't know. Right. Like and that. so he, you can calculate yeah. it uh, once the arrow is cut under 20 inches using the math formula at the document that I just directed you to, Robert. Lynn um, is asking a question about series on ACCs. Um, and the quick answer to that question is uh, that the series number on the ACC has to do with the specific carbon used and what manufacturer made the carbon. And um, so if you see a different series number, that's strictly a function of, uh, of, of an update to the materials used. George Clark says he's having trouble holding low at 50 meters is there anything we can help him with? And George, when answering a question like this, it's best to know if I'm, you know, if you're shooting compound or recurve, the answer might be a little different. But let's just look at the issue of holding low at any distance because it's generally the same problem. It's an anticipation issue. Yep. And so, you know, you've got to change your focus. Sometimes you can do that by, you know, the will to do so. <laughs> and sometimes it's helpful to change what you're seeing. And so you might want to try, uh, potentially, it's going to make noise when you play with that, just so you know. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's probably a good idea to see what you can do in terms of changing up what aperture you're using. Does that make sense? I think people are going to take that comment about making noise. You're wiggling around your, your microphone connector, <laughs> and it's going to make noise. That's all I'm saying. It's important that you state what I was playing with. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, back to the question. Yes. You know, I was working with a shooter in Japan recently who was struggling to not punch it. So he would hold low and then do the drive-by, swing the bow up. and, and Oh, that's one of the three compound punch shooters the hell in Japan, out I know. Yeah. So I, I said, you know what? You're going to draw back. You're going to aim at the middle. You're going to get your finger over the trigger, and you're, you're not going to shoot. You're just going to set your finger on the trigger. And he flinched that. so many times, oh, you know, boy. but it, he learned that he could do it. So they then I, I said, not, you know what? They could resist yes. punching. Yeah, so I think a, a lot of blank bail just to – and just focus purely on execution, resist that that uh, feeling of – of uh, flinching and and it, you know it happens to a lot of people. You you get to the point where you think the arrow should fire. You're aiming in or around the middle, and you think it should go off, and 
you kind of have that little. I see it happen with rifle shooters jerk. too. Yeah, where yeah. you just you just move a touch and you're expecting it to go. And it doesn't, and oftentimes the flinch is what sets it off, which is not good. No, so you just kind of have to commit your mind to aiming in the middle and then stay extremely patient with the release. And you might be super slow or feel like you're slow with the execution, but it will get better. It's a commitment over time to doing this the right way. All right. Um, Lights Out Crew is asking about the Hoyt Pro Edge Elite, which is probably one of the worst bow uh, acronyms ever. Uh, If wanting to shoot it at the 65% setting rather than the 75% setting, does one have to retime the cams since you position the stop one hole short or have the Hoyt engineers taken the cam rotation into account already? I have no idea. So uh, the Pro Edge Elite comes with the larger diameter red stop. And if you put that in, say you're using a B module and you put the stop in the the B position, that gives you about 75% let off. If you take that uh, stop out, you put in the small stop that goes in the, say the spiral cams or the SVX cam, and you put that in the A position, now you'll get about 65% let off. You you might need to retime. There's a, a lot of different factors come into play on that. But it won't be a whole lot. Mark is asking, uh, well, he says he'd like to hear some conversation about the fact that USA Archery is sending a team to France for the World 3D Championships in September. No, they're not. They aren't sending a team because they're holding a USAT event the same weekend as World 3D Championships. Otherwise, you would have got guys who would have competed to be on that team. Instead, it was whoever showed up at the event um, Which was the yeah, ASA event? It was at an ASA, yeah. So, one, they held the trials during a time when we were at a World Cup. So, immediately when they do that, the rule changes to where one through four in the U.S. rankings get first option. They get to pick first if they want to go to that. We all said no because we have to be here for a ranking event to try to make the team for 2018. Otherwise, I would have gone. So, I mean, I, I object to the idea that you're saying that the – NAA is sending a team. No, they're not. Those people are sending themselves. It's a self-funded event. Yeah, that's true too. I mean, there was a somewhat of a selection procedure that was not very well planned out, nor was our schedule planned out very well. So the team that's going is is uh, not a team that qualified at a trials process. And that's unfortunate, but I think they'll from have what fun. I know. They I, might have. I'm but sure they'll have fun, you know. It was, but, but it don't was, say the NAA is sending a team because yeah, they've I mean, always people are they've always done ways. this. Yeah, they've always done this. It's just they've never had any sort of uh, official process, and this year they did. Unfortunately, they planned it poorly. This will be a good opportunity, you know, to travel and and represent the U.S. for a bunch of folks who I have. I mean, I, I recognize one name in this entire group, and um, so you know, I hope that this works out well and they have a great great time. But you can't. You can't say the uh, USA Archery shouldn't be saying that they are sending these people, you know, because these people are sending these people. Right? Yeah, they're they're going to wear a USA Archery jersey, but they may they're have to footing, pay for. Yeah, they're paying for it and they're footing their own bill. So it, it's uh, know, I'm kind of salty about it because I I actually wanted to shoot it. And um, Dave I Cousins shot it a few years ago, right? Yeah, Dave Cousins won it last yeah. time. I mean, pretty handily. Yeah. So. I would I like will say to I think shoot that, that event. You know, some of these categories, like the longbow categories and stuff, you guys are going to find out that there's some Europeans have got some really good, uh, serious skills in that area. They do this stuff a lot mm-hmm. over there. I, I was very surprised and um, fascinated by how many folks are into the whole longbow running around with a freaking coonskin cap in <laughs> Switzerland. Yeah, you know, I'm 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 like wow. I had no idea that there were this many people doing that kind of thing back, you know, the first time I encountered it about 10 years ago. And you know what I, I kind of like about Europe is if you're a part of a club, you know, say you're a part of a golf club or a archery club, you that's you actually do it. Like I'm a part of an archery club. I never go there. I never have anything to do with the club fun- functions. It's a place for me to go shoot my bow when I need to go train there. But, you know, I like say Dean Alberga, he's a part of a golf club there. He's there. When he's home, he's there every week, multiple times a week. It's what he does. When I was in Ireland, um, golf was on TV and it was the Ryder Cup. Every member of the golf club, they went to the club because that's what they do. 
So here in the U.S., we have a lot of distractions and a lot of different things pulling us away from 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 what we do. And and it seems like over there, they're you know they they select a hobby or they select something to participate in, and they they really do it. So these people who shoot longbow and who shoot bare bow recurve, they are no joke. These guys shoot courses. They've they've got people who do it with them. You know, it's hard to find a a bare bow recurve. 3d shooter anywhere in the u.s and you'll find a club of them over there yeah clubs of them yeah lots of them yes and uh i mean just germany alone maybe 30 something clubs doing that and they push each other to different level yeah than what than what we uh are than what we might think and you know contrary to some of the things that i've heard on the net here and there they're perfectly content shooting the style of barebow that they shoot they don't want target barebow necessarily they're they're just happy shooting field the way they shoot it right and I think it's good to be um, good at what you do. So, you know, these people have worked hard to get there. And, and the, the, team, that, the um, team that will be representing the U.S. Um, is, is going to have a good opportunity to see what the rest of the world's doing. That'll be an eye-opener, I'm sure. Yeah, it'll be fun for them. I mean, they, they all get to... Well, there's nothing more fun than representing your country. Right. It's great. I, I uh, feel bad for how much they're probably going to get charged for their jersey. Uh, other than that, you know, they kind of knew what they were getting into on the uh, the trip side of it, where it's self funded. Maybe so. So, treat it as a as a experience that you might might never get again. All right, I'm going to shift up and talk about some. Uh, it's not rumor mill. It's some stuff that is going on at the NFAA these days with the, the professional category. Um, you know, word on the street is that they're trying to make professional or pro mean something more than just some guy walking around with a pro staff for Bob's bowstrings kind of shirt, right? What do you feel about some of those changes? I'll, I'll just outline them very quickly. The proposals. Um, one is that if you're going to wear a shirt that says the term specifically pro staff, you need to be an actual NFAA pro. You need to pay your dues, which are going to go up a bit, and you need to qualify. And uh, qualifying means... Sometime in the last six years, you have to have shot certain scores. I think it's a good idea to, you know, make that mean something. Yeah, and people are people are arguing that the scores are so low that it doesn't mean anything. I'm like, well, you got to start okay, somewhere. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of how I feel. Before we had nothing. If you had seventy five dollars, you could refer to yourself as a professional archer, and. And I think it's been $75 forever. Yeah, it's just a... I think it was 75 bucks back in 83 when I started. There's no... To me, there's no aspiration towards it. I mean, there's a a number of guys who choose not to shoot pro because they figured out how to make 30, 40 grand a year competing as an amateur who is... You know, they're more than capable of shooting pro-level scores and they're they're doing it in the amateur class. And on occasion, when they they shoot a, a... a pro entry, a championship where they don't require pro membership. You know, they, they don't necessarily perform as well. And it's maybe just because one, it's hard to win or two, I don't know that maybe they, their confidence level changes. I couldn't tell you, but you know, right now our, to be a pro archer in the NFA doesn't have, doesn't carry much meaning. Um, well, and I think they recognize that, and, and and Chuck in particular, Chuck Cooley, who's in charge of the pro category, yeah. I think he's trying to make some effort to try to make it mean something. Yeah, we've got to do something because otherwise, we're just spinning our wheels in the same place where we've always been. Well, looking at it from the point of view of a manufacturer, I kind of like the the concept of making it mean something more than it you know does. Yeah, I'm 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 fine with it. It's going to be very hard for them to police, and it's going to be messy for the first few years. And I'm really happy I don't have to deal with it personally, you know, from a, from a standpoint of, of, uh, the logistics that the NFA is going to have to go through to, like I said, police this, but, and, and it's kind of, you know, a, a, some kids going to show up with, you know, they're going to be 10, 12 years old and you know, the, the bow shop they shoot out of is going to give them a pro staff shirt or something. It's going to say pro staff and they're, they're going to, someone really going to say, Hey, you can't shoot in the cub class. You have to shoot in the pro class because of your shirt. Is that really going to happen? I don't know. I don't know either. I will say this. I, I don't want to have any. any I'm going to throw this out there. It. You want to really have a professional category? Fine. Adopt doping control. Which has kind of been done. 
Yeah. I mean, at least at Vegas, we have doping control. Yeah, but Vegas is technically not an NFAA event. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. So you're talking in the NFA. I think I think to make ourselves seem professional, a, a doping is, is on the list, but pretty far down the list. Yeah. Doping control. As opposed to, say, colored shirts. There's a, there's a number of things on there. I mean, the dress code right now is – it just says no denim, basically. I I don't and I don't know that a dress I code. I thought a helps. colored shirt was still on there. I think it is. It, it's. I don't know. I I can't say for sure, but to me, for us to be a legitimate pro sport, we have a long, long ways to go. One, the first thing is probably in in a format that is entertaining to people to watch outside of the sport because I don't like watching archery. And I do it. The only reason I will watch is because I understand it and know who's who. And or you know somebody in a match and it's, right. it's your wife or something yeah. and you're interested. But we have we have very little. And a lot of people listen to this are going to be like, well, I really like watching Archer. Of course you do. You, you but you you're, you're also listening to a freaking enthusiast. podcast about it. So yeah, you're there's already something wrong with you. <laughs> you're an enthusiast, right? But the random person at home isn't going to watch it. I think I've said right. this on the podcast before. This is how I know our sport is in trouble. Forbes magazine. So I watch Supercross a lot. It's you know indoor dirt bike racing or in in large stadiums. Uh, very popular. Millions and millions of dollars on the line. Um, you know these guys. These guys make a lot of money doing it, and they are true professionals. And um, Forbes magazine wrote an article where they first had to explain what supercross was and then explain to people that it's popular. There's already millions of dollars in the sport. The best in the, in the sport make millions and someone, st- a, a large media outlet still has to explain that it's popular. Well, but you got to remember who Forbes is written for, right? It's written for like our boss. Yeah. But still, you know what I'm saying? They're a, Yes, but they're a little bit, you know, nose in the air. I, I know Steve Forbes personally, so you know, I think mm-hmm. I still get a tie every year. But I will tell you, I I think maybe they're writing to their audience in that particular context. I get what Possibly. you're saying, and and yeah. I agree, by the way. But I think that specific example is one of eh, they're probably writing to their audience. Mm-hmm. Their audience has kids that are watching Supercross. Yeah, the the closest thing I ever saw to us making it was the Great Outdoor Games. You know, yeah. even then that was a one time a year thing on ESPN and there was a lot of it was a niche a niche watch. It was during a time in the summer when other sports weren't on TV. It was about this time of year because basketball's over, yes, football hasn't yet started. The only sport really on right now in the US at least is uh baseball. I had to announce one of those things one year and it was in the Nevada desert. It was down in uh, somewhere like near Lachlan, you know, mm. and it was, it was hot. <laughs> I'll just put it that yeah. way. It was, it was really hot. The thing about the great outdoor games that it was basically financially not sustainable, you know, and quite frankly, put on I, I didn't, I didn't like some of the rounds. They were, they, they had some goofball archery rounds where you're shooting at like rotating apples and crap like that. It yeah. was like a carnival game. Yeah, there, there is some I, I give them credit for making the effort to try to make it telegenic, to try to make it they, interesting They did to something to try to make it for, so people who have never participated in archery could watch it and, and maybe feel excited about it. If you've never participated in archery and you watch you know, Mike Schlosser and Stefan Hansen shooting off at Vegas – you don't know what's going on there. You or, don't understand or appreciate it. Maybe. Yeah. You don't, yeah. You don't understand the nerves or appreciate the yeah. nerves and everything's on the line. Well, and I'm going to mention, you know, I mean, we just had a world cup here a couple weeks ago and quite frankly, I think maybe for the first time I began to understand that we have a problem in terms of making it accessible to people who aren't already in it. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was my, the, the, the comments that I was hearing from just regular folks that were there and some of the comments they made about how they needed some of the input that they got from listening to commentary and things of that nature made it pretty clear to me that it's 
a very difficult thing for people who are not part of it to even know what's going on, much less enjoy it. And in that regard, something's broken, you know. Part of our problem is, you know, I mean, we don't have a ball that you can see flying through the air. Mm -hmm. We don't have strategy. I can't block your shot, right? Nope. We what we have is is you know what we've always had, which is the archer and the target, and we as archers appreciate that. But we're kidding ourselves if we really think that long term this is going to be a huge spectator sport outside of venues like the Olympic Games that kind of have a certain magic about them anyway because of what they are. And that's, but I'll I'll say that's not a spec. That's not a huge spectator. It venue. certainly wasn't that the one you went to. Now I will no. argue that London was. Oh, how many people attended? We had fifty five hundred people, full house. You know, all the venue could hold. So once every four years, they they draw maybe ten thousand people. Well, it was fifty by the time you got done. But yeah, I hear you. Well, yeah, I mean that's just not. I've played in high school basketball games with more people than that. I'm not going to argue your point. You know, every week. But so. you know, I mean that's 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 it. Kind of redoubles the importance of that particular event for our sport but you know i'm wondering if the world cup is getting it done well on that level the, the world cup to me is the olympics the olympic competition four times a year and is that too much the only, i think the only reason people watch the olympics in archery is because you know it's part of the olympic games but if, I'm if it serious, was every so. year the olympics would lose interest i'm, I'm you know look the World Cup has been a big event in the last few years from the standpoint of um, YouTube views and things of that nature. It's good for the sport from the standpoint of visibility and maybe creating a few people as stars of the sport, you know, but only within the sport as far as I can see. I'm With, seeing, yes, exactly. It's not it's Who not knows Mike Schluser out. outside of archery? Nobody. You know, who knows Real Wild outside of archery? Nobody knows anybody outside of archery. Right, that's our problem. So, right now. and I, I, you know, I've kind of accepted that, and people, people will probably. You By know, the way, that's a very parochial view on our part because people in Korea, I can guarantee you, know who Ojin yeah, Gyuk is. Yeah, they're a little know who Kibo Bay is. Bigger deal. To the point where where Kibo Bay's got problems with stalkers. I mean, it's scary. So, you know, we've got a situation where we need to appreciate what we've got, but we need to understand that it's it's parochial. It's within our own sport. Yeah. Now. Coming full circle back to the NFAA thing, um, these change, like I said, these changes aren't going to make a big splash for us. It's a start, but it's only a start. Where it goes from here, I'm excited to see. I guess, but you know, to legitimize our sport is a huge uphill battle. All right, all right. So sorry for the heavy aspect of the conversation yeah, there. But. I, and I don't mean to sound like, you know, down on archery or anything. It's just a pretty realistic viewpoint. I mean, I, I think, you know, we have a long way to go to be relevant. And I would argue first, though, let's that, be, let's make ourselves relevant within our own game. Okay. I like that thought, right? Whatever that means. And, and that may mean legitimize, legitimize archery within archery. How about that? Which means take away the uh, doubts that some people have about the legitimacy of the 50-meter round for deciding the best compound shooter in a given event. As an example. Yeah. That's, that's Steve Anderson's stance on this, right? Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Where are you going from here? Um, I'll probably up to my office and maybe to lunch. Sounds like a plan to me. Yeah. It's almost lunchtime. <laughs> Look at that. Well, I want to thank, uh, once again, all of our uh, great listeners who've posted questions for us, uh, which, you know, are always interesting and engaging and pretty cool. Because as always, um, you know, we rely on you guys to provide a lot of the content because we haven't got anything going on. So, you know, it's great to get your questions, yeah, especially right at this time of year. It's kind of so, you know, it's awesome. Um, thank you for that. And uh, if you're listening to us or you're downloading us from iTunes, uh, it really is helpful to other folks who are looking for this kind of content to, to have a review posted. So uh, whether you hate it or like it or whatever, putting a review up makes it easier for people to find the podcast on iTunes. So please take the time. And I know it's complicated. I've, I've actually looked to see what's required, and it's a pain in the butt. But uh, 
awesome if you don't mind leaving us a review. Um, you know, it just uh, it occurred to me that we forgot to mention this other event that just took place here right in our backyard. Oh, yeah. 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 The Total Archery Challenge. Total thing? Archery Challenge, formerly known as Bowcast at the oh, Bird. Yeah. yeah, at Snowbird, which, okay, so we're in Utah, for those of you who don't know that, uh, at Salt Lake City, and um, there are some fabulous ski areas within 20 minutes of, uh, you know, what kind of a geographical anomaly do you have to be in where everything's 20 minutes away from everything? That's where we are. Do you know the movie I'm referring to? No. Someone will. Anyway, so we are <clears throat> we are uh, 20 minutes away from some fabulous uh, alpine stuff. And um, one of those is a place called Snowbird, which is a basically a world-class ski resort uh, up in the mountains. And there's a tournament that's been taking place there for the last... Well, they say it's a tournament. There's no scoring. How can you have a tournament without scoring? I'd call it a rendezvous. Okay. Anyways, it's 1,500 mostly compound shooters getting together and um, shooting at targets out to 80 meters, yards. And uh, they're basically 3D targets. And if you're familiar with World Archery Field, the terrain is like the classic old days of World Archery Field where you'd have to rope yourself in for some some of the shots. They've kind of dumbed it down in order to make sure that judges can keep up with the archers on the field these days. For example, you can't have a WA field over 2,000 meters in altitude, and the place where this thing is is 2,400 meters or so, just as an example. Yeah. But some gnarly shots, you know, 80-yard shots that you have to cut to 20, things like that. You know, yeah. Where so, you could basically drop the arrow and, and hit the target. It's interesting to me. It's the largest archery event in the state. Yeah. And and it, it's a... Uh, and not one sign. Just for fun. I went up there to just scope it out. There wasn't any... There was no signage. There was nobody helping people get around, but everybody seemed to know where to go, I guess. Anyway, um, you know, because it, it, there's no scoring, it's just fun, I gather. And um, any thoughts? Mm, no, maybe it's uh, maybe it's worth saying, you know, that that competitive archery that the turn in a tournament form is a turnoff to some people, you know. So maybe whereas you can show up at this thing, have fun with your bow and arrow, walking around in the woods or mountains yeah. in this case, and um, nobody's going to judge you based on how you shot or didn't. Yeah, and and you know, some people said, I said, how did you shoot? And they said, oh, I. Pretty good. I only broke a couple arrows, you know. Yeah, it goes off. How many arrows did you leave with? Yeah. How many did you arrive with? Let's say you arrived with a dozen arrows. If you still had a dozen at the end of the day, you were a you're, winner. You're the man. Yeah. You were definitely a winner. So, especially I, given some of those shots. Yeah, maybe it says something about uh, local clubs setting up a an event that's just for fun. Find a way to do something where people can come and attend and not have to worry about the pressures of tournament archery or the intimidation of target archers who are you know experienced target archers i think if you're a newcomer it can be intimidating of, yeah kind of intimidating what's all that stuff on his bow and uh, i don't you know i'm not comfortable here he's probably thinks i suck there's a lot of that so well yeah i mean you know i've found it historically that i didn't want to go to my first big indoor tournament until i felt i was ready and if i'd really waited till i was actually ready i'd probably not be at one yet right you know what i mean I mean, at some point, you got to pull the trigger and just go. And yeah. and and you're going to find out that, yeah, there's going to be a few people that you maybe don't want to hang out with, but there's going to be more people that are going to be helpful, kind, friendly, welcoming. You're going to find more of that. So don't be afraid to go to a tournament is what I'm trying to say. And, and conversely, if you're you know a guy at your club, guy or gal at your club that – is experienced and knows what they're doing and goes to the events and maybe maybe you don't feel like you're intimidating to someone else but you might be and it's unintentional so try to be welcoming and inviting and maybe uh you know as a club look at hosting something that's uh non-competitive you know i remember um the first time i went to a big tournament it was back east and i visited a uh, club outside of philadelphia and there was a shooter there who'd shot in the Olympic Games. And so me and my friends were like, we're going to go watch this shooter. We're going to watch her shoot. Just observe her shooting. 
You know what we realized? She looks a lot like everybody else. Yeah, and she was a nice person who was friendly and approachable and was willing to talk to people, not some demigod. Right. So, you know, don't feel like you can't just hang out with we're just archers, you know. You're going to you're going to turn around someday, folks. One of you is going to be on the line. Steve Anderson's going to be next to you. Rhea Wild's going to be next to you. One of those things is going to happen. You're going to find out they're just like anybody else. And that's one of the cool things about our sport. It's a bunch of dorks out there. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, uh, it's looking like lunchtime, man. Yeah, definitely. What, what do you think is on the agenda for today for lunch? I don't know. Um, wherever we end up, we end up. Yeah, that's true. That's a pretty, pretty regular deal <laughs> when you're in town anyway. Uh, I got some travel coming up. Oh right, yeah, yeah. I gotta, I gotta do some, some training. Yeah. So this will be fun. We'll see. We're training happens. some some folks at uh, some stuff, some retail outlets, right? Yeah, something like yeah. that. So that'll be interesting to see how that goes. All right. So, uh, folks, thank you for uh, listening once again. Remember once again to uh, please give us a rating on on iTunes, and uh, we really appreciate all of you who take the time to subscribe and download to the. Uh, to the podcast. Can't have it without you. So thank you. I think that just about is... I think it's the end of the show. End of show. <laughs>